Mark 14, um, verse 12 through 26. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, as they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to him, to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let us pray. God, thank you for bringing us all together in your house today. And I just ask that as the word is preached, that you will just move through Pastor David and anoint his word so that our ears and our hearts will connect and open to what it is that you are trying to say to us and that we'll be able to transcend what we learn from here and take it and minister to those who are not believers as well as to our believers to share the gospel and that you will allow us to have a good week and be strengthened in your word and just be encouraged even if we are broken, Lord. It's in your name that we pray and we give you thanks every day. Amen. You may be seated. Right there. Raising kids in another culture comes with uh, a lot of interesting decisions, some inherent tensions. Um, One of those is your desire for your children to grow up naturally in this in this foreign culture in this new culture to to embrace it to be able to make friends live fluidly in this culture but at the same time amen <laughs> uh, at the same time uh, be connected to their roots you know, it's especially interesting when you're raising kids in one culture, having never lived in your home culture, that tension is, is no more apparent than on the most classic of American holidays, Thanksgiving. 
You know, Thanksgiving is, is only celebrated here. It's not celebrated abroad, at least American Thanksgiving, the way we know it, with your, with your turkey and your stuffing and your pilgrims and, and all of those things. But, but it is so inherent in who we are. We all grew up with this. When you live abroad, you, definitely, you, you desperately want your children to be connected to that. So, so what we would do is we kind of rallied the troops. We knew a couple of other American families that lived in the same city we lived in, and we all agreed that on that Thursday and Friday of Thanksgiving, we're going to take our kids out of school so that they can experience what a Thanksgiving break would be like. Um, we are going to get together and prepare uh, an elaborate Thanksgiving meal. And, and when I say prepare, you've got you've to do a lot of preparation in advance. You've got to literally call the farmer a month in advance so he can slaughter a turkey for you because you can't just pick them up at the local Kroger. Uh, certain ingredients everywhere around the world you can't, you can't get. Where we lived, it was hard to get sweet potatoes. It was hard to get pecans. And Thanksgiving doesn't count unless there's pecan pie. So you've got to call your friends back in the States and have them ship it to you. All of those things so that our children could be connected to this tradition that was so important to us. Now, what we found was over the years, as we continued this elaborate preparation to do our Thanksgiving meal, as we continued with our friends and and cooking some traditional Thanksgiving dishes, but then having to substitute others because you couldn't get all of the right ingredients, each one of those meals, each one of those dishes, all of the preparation began to take on an entire new meaning. We're now back in the States getting to celebrate Thanksgiving in a much more traditional way here. We end up preparing the same dishes in the same way as we would prepare them abroad, each of them reminding us of God's provision in our life, each of them taking on a brand new meaning in our family, each of them reminding us of the family that he provided for us even 5,000 miles and seven time zones away. It's amazing how old traditions can take on new and more powerful meanings. As we continue... In our study of the Gospel of Mark, today we arrive at Mark chapter 14. Today we arrive at the Last Supper. That supper was a Passover meal. That, that night in that upper room with his 12 disciples, Jesus injected new meaning into these traditional elements. Now, Passover, it was and still is today one of the highest and holiest days on the Jewish calendar. The meal that you eat at Passover is is very specific. The elements are very specific and ordered, all of which dripping with meaning specifically designed to remind the Jews of their exodus from Egypt. Now, now for just a second, let's explore that word remind. In kind of the modern Western cultural sense, remind or remember is kind of to recall the facts of a past event, the date of a past event. 
But in Jewish culture, it has a completely different connotation, a completely different meaning. The Jewish conception of, of remembering something is, is to, to remember it and to relive it so that you bring it into the present. For example, currently my daughter and I are studying the Civil War together, as fathers and daughters tend to do, right? Um, and we are using the classic Ken Burns documentary. You guys remember that, the PBS documentary, to kind of, that, that's our framework as we're going through the Civil War. We'll watch an episode a week, and, and we'll take some notes, and we'll talk about it. In, in the Western idea of recalling or remembering, as we go through that, we would simply be writing down facts, dates, the names of generals, the times that battles happen, the, the political landscape that, that resulted in the Civil War. But in the Jewish sense of remembering, as we study the Civil War, we would, we would never lose sight of it and we would live our lives today as though we were changed by it. We would study that war, remember why it happened, and change our lives today because of it. It is to bring that past event into the present. The traditional Passover meal was specifically designed and meant to put each generation of Jews in touch with God's deliverance and make it a present reality for them. Today we get an opportunity to celebrate communion. And, and in the same way, communion today is not a memorial of some past event that happened. Communion today reminds us of what the Lord has done for us. It makes his death and presence with us a living reality today. That is why we celebrate communion. Now, as we look back at that passage in Mark chapter 14 that Galileo read for us this morning, uh, we find ourselves kind of deep into Holy Week. Remember, Mark chapters 1 through 10 point Jesus towards Jerusalem. At the beginning of chapter 11 is the beginning of Holy Week. It's the triumphant entry. Jesus finally makes his way into Jerusalem. The crowds gather. They line the streets. They put down articles of clothing and palm branches shouting, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Throughout Holy Week, this Passover week where the entire world seemingly has descended upon Jerusalem. It's swelled to ten times its size. We see Jesus day after day teaching in the temple complex that we talked about last week. Teaching through the interruptions of the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees who are trying to back him into a corner, plotting against him. Jesus would teach during the day and then retreat to this little suburb a couple of miles outside of town called Bethany. To spend the evenings resting with friends. And now in Mark chapter 14, we find ourselves approaching the Passover meal. And Jesus gives a couple of, of his disciples some very specific and interesting instructions. Look back with me, Mark 14, starting in verse 13. So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him wherever he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, 
Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. This seems like super cloak and daggerish, doesn't it? Like, hey guys, go into the city and there's going to be a dude and he's going to have some water and he'll kind of give you the wink. And when he does, don't say anything. Just follow him down this alley and he's going to walk into a room. And when he does, there's going to be a man. And when there's a man, you say, the teacher says, show us to the room. Like passwords and all these different things. It's fascinating to look at this. We don't know exactly how this came about. It very well could be that this man with the upper room was a devoted follower of Jesus and Jesus had prearranged this room and this meeting. It could be simply that this is another sign of Jesus' omniscience. We don't know exactly how it came about. What we do know from verse 16 is these two disciples went in and they found it exactly the way Jesus said it would happen. They were led to this room in a town that had no rooms. This is the French Quarter at Mardi Gras. Everyone is there, but here there is a room. Not only is it ready for them, but it's completely tricked out for the Passover. And when I say tricked out... This was a very elaborate meal. So for this thing to be ready for the Passover, it had, to, it had to have all of the formal trappings for a Passover meal. They found this room when everyone else was looking and nobody else would find it. We don't know exactly how it happened. What we do know is Jesus had prepared everything, every single detail, and everything was under his control. When they get to this room, when the Passover meal is prepared, this meal was anything but a casual family dining event. As we read this story, we see that it's, it's filled with, with high tension. It's filled with sweaty palms. It's filled with anxiety. Because right at the beginning, Jesus says, there is a traitor in this room right now. The 12 of you that have been walking with me every day for three years, one of you is going to betray me. Now, we read this, hindsight being 2020, knowing exactly who it is. You know, his name, Judas, has become synonymous with the word traitor. But if you look at the disciples' reaction, they had no such insight. They didn't immediately turn to Judas and be like, dude, for real? No, every single one of them, read with me, verse 19. They began to be distressed. They were filled with this anxiety. And to say to Jesus one by one, surely not I. As soon as Jesus says, there's a traitor in the room, every single one of these guys went to that place. We've all received that text message from a parent or a spouse or a significant other. Hey, when you get home, we need to talk. 
Are there four more anxiety-producing words than we need to talk? You get that message, and immediately your mind goes there. What have I done? What has she found out? Does she know? Immediately you're in that place of self-reflection. You're in that place of self-examination. That's exactly where the disciples were in this moment. What did I do? Has he found out? Surely, surely Jesus said, it wasn't me. It's not, it's not my fault. High tension, high anxiety in these moments. So often... We approach communion very casually. We walk into the room, we see the silver trays, and we think, ah, sweet, communion day. Sermon's five minutes shorter. We can roll on out of here, get a little snack at the end. I'm guilty of it. Instead of that casual attitude, each time we approach the communion table, each time we partake of these elements, each time we remember that night in that room, we should do so with this same spirit of self-examination. Surely, Lord, not I. We should be acutely aware that if one of these 12 men, one of these men that walked intimately with our Savior for years, if one of these men could betray him, we are not above it. And in those moments of self-examination, we, we recall Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 as he's, as he's writing to his dear friends in the church at Corinth, as he's writing to them about communion, and he's encouraging the same level of self-examination. He talks to them about partaking of the communion elements worthily. We need to think about are we Worthy. We need to remember that night. And the idea, the idea is to move from to move from cross-examination, to move from looking at the person to our right, the person to our left, the person that wronged us last week, to move from that sort of cross-examination to a moment of self-examination. As we prepare ourselves for communion, we should have that sort of self-examination. We should ask ourselves, are we worthy? And it is not so that we beat ourselves up. That's not what this self-examination is about. It's not so that we live all of our past mistakes, all of our bad decisions. That's not what this is about. It's so that we are able to remind ourselves... That we have done nothing to deserve the sacrifice and salvation that these elements represent. We 
David Garland tells us, become worthy when we realize we are unworthy. We experience the power of the moment when we recognize that we are powerless. It is with that spirit that the disciples would have partaken of that last supper, of that Passover meal that night. Now, we know specifically exactly what the disciples and Jesus would have done in the Passover meal that night. Each element of the meal was enumerated and ordered very specifically. Each element held great purpose. The main meal would have had four main elements. There would have been unleavened bread, which represented the affliction that the Jews, God's people, felt in Egypt. There there were some bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. There was this specific stewed fruit with a very specific recipe, and as it sat on the table, visually... It looked like the mortar from which they made the bricks in slavery, reminding them of the hard labor that they had to endure. And finally, the roast lamb, reminding them of that first Passover night as the tenth plague roars through Egypt and God instructed his people to take a perfect and spotless lamb, sacrifice it, Mark their door frames with its blood so that death himself might pass over their home and their family. Now the Passover meal also came with four cups of wine, each of which in order reminded those that were partaking of the meal of a specific event. The, the first cup of wine, known as the cup of sanctification, was there to remind them of their salvation from the harsh labor, that they were set aside from the harsh labor they had to endure in Egypt. The second cup, known as the cup of deliverance, would have reminded them of their salvation from servitude as they escaped the people of Egypt. The third cup is the cup of redemption that reminds them specifically of what it must have been like to stand on the opposite shore of the Red Sea, God having parted it for his people to pass through, And then it crashes down on Pharaoh and his armies for the first time as they look back at the sea. They are truly free, their enemies having been defeated. No longer do they have to live a life looking over their shoulder. And finally, the fourth cup, the cup of restoration. This is, this is the cup that reminds them of God making them a great nation, reminds them of Mount Sinai. All of this follows the pattern of Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, as God speaks to Moses. He says, therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians, first cup. I will rescue you from the slavery to them, second cup. 
I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment, third cup. And I will take you as my people and I will be your God, fourth cup. Each element, the food and the cups, had great meaning. As Jesus and his disciples began the Passover meal that night, it would have begun with a blessing and that first cup, that cup of sanctification. And then they would have sang a hymn. We know exactly which hymns they would have sang. They would have sang Psalm 113, Psalm 114, and Psalm 115. Following the singing of these psalms, you get the blessing and the second cup, the cup of deliverance. And it's after that second cup that Mark in chapter 14 picks up the story of the Passover meal that night. As they were eating, Mark says in verse 22, Jesus took bread blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Luke in chapter 22 of Luke gives us a little more insight into Jesus's words that night. He says, take this bread, this is my body, it's been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus then goes on and he takes a cup. And after giving thanks, he gives it to the disciples. They all drank from it and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Do this in remembrance of me with those words. Jesus infused new, profound meaning into these same elements. With those words, Jesus gave us the meaning that we celebrate every time we approach the communion table. Do this in remembrance of me. It's with those words ringing in our ears that we celebrate communion this morning, that we eat the bread, that we drink from the cup, that we reflect on Christ's sacrifice, which would have been hours after this meal, hours after this moment, we reflect on his sacrifice and the salvation and grace that we are afforded because of it. But wait, there's more. Christ talks about this third cup. Take this cup. This is my blood in the new covenant spilled for many. Do this in remembrance of me. And then what does he say? Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Remember, the cup that Christ would have presented to his followers was the third cup, the cup of redemption. It is through the blood that that cup represents that we are redeemed. But you might also remember in the classic Passover meal, there was a fourth cup. 
the cup of restoration. Jesus stops the meal after redemption and says, I will not drink that fourth cup until I drink it with you in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus in that moment says, the fourth cup is yet to come. The cup of full and complete restoration is yet to come as we partake of the communion elements we remember the sacrifice of his body broken for us. We remember the spilling of his blood for us. And we remember the promise of the fourth cup of full and complete restoration. The promise that he will be back. The promise that we get to live with him for all eternity. Mark chapter 14, this passage that Galileo read for us this morning, this dramatic Passover meal filled, filled with tension, a moment to infuse these ancient elements with new meaning to remind us of the sacrifice, to remind us of the promise after these dramatic words, this passage ends in verse 26 with what seems to be kind of a throwaway verse. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now we know when they go to the Mount of Olives, that's when Jesus is betrayed by one of his followers. That's when he's arrested. That's when everything starts rolling downhill. The events leading to his torture and his execution begin to unfold. It is super easy to jump from the Last Supper directly into the garden and ignore this verse. Then they sang a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives. But remember, we know exactly what that meal entailed, which means we know exactly what hymn they sung. The Passover meal begins with Psalm 113, 114, 115. And it ends by the singing of Psalm 116, 117, and 118. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 116. As they sung this hymn, it would have begun this way. I love the Lord because he has heard my appeal for mercy. Because he has turned his ear to me, I will call out to him as long as I live. The ropes of death were wrapped around me and the torments of Sheol overcame me. I encountered trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord, Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is compassionate. The Lord guards the inexperienced. I was helpless and he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul. 
For the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, rescued me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. As they continued to sing, they would have sung Psalm 117, two simple verses. Praise the Lord, all nations. Glorify him, all peoples. For his faithful love to us is great. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Hallelujah. In that moment of darkness... As Jesus knows and no doubt anticipates what the coming hours will bring. He leads his closest followers and dearest friends in a hymn of praise. That would have ended with the 118th Psalm. That Psalm begins this way. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let Israel say, his faithful love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his faithful love endures forever. Let all those who fear the Lord say, His faithful love endures forever. And then the last words they would have sung before they left that room to go to the Mount of Olives, before they left to go to the garden, before Jesus left to be betrayed, arrested, tortured, and executed. The final words of Psalm 118, you are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. This morning, we have an incredible opportunity to participate together as a family in communion. As we do so, this Lord's Supper must therefore be celebrated as a reminder of two incredibly important truths. The joy, the absolute joy of our salvation, having already been procured by the body that was broken and the blood that was spilt for us, the price that was paid for us. And secondly, in anticipation and hope that Jesus will come back and the promise of our eternity and eternal fellowship with him. A reminder of the love that This sacrifice represents, endures forever. The elements we are about to receive are not magic. They do not bring with them a guarantee of salvation. Instead, they are a reminder in the Jewish sense of that word to bring present into our lives today of Christ's sacrifice that brought salvation 
and his promise of eternity and complete restoration. Deacons will be passing out these elements in just a moment. You're going to receive two cups. When you do, take those cups and hold them for just a moment. Take that moment of self-reflection. Let it wash over you. Be reminded that there's nothing any of us did to deserve the sacrifice these elements represent. But at the same time, be reminded of the salvation and grace that we are offered through that sacrifice. Be reminded not only of that night in the upper room, but of the very present reality of Christ's sacrifice and his presence with you today. After a few moments of that self-reflection, we will be led in a time to partake in these elements together as a church family. As we prepare ourselves, would you pray with me? Lord, we are humbled and amazed by your presence with us this morning. Grateful beyond words for the sacrifice that these elements represent. Grateful beyond measure that it did not end on the cross. But the very present reality of you with us today And the promise that we get to walk with you forever. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.